Hey all you cool cats and kittens, welcome back, 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 back again to another episode of the MT. It's so lovely to be with you again after a little break. It's been a challenging few months with coronavirus and protests against police brutality and racism. It's clear that I still have a lot of work to do around my own privilege and racism, and that we as a music therapy community have work to do too. I hope we can all continue to learn and grow together. It's June, and that means Pride Month! One of my personal favorite months, especially as we return to our pride roots with riots against the unjust system that systematically devalues and destroys black lives. I would like to encourage all my white listeners to make sure you're engaging in anti-racism work. You can sign petitions, donate to and connect with local organizations in your community, unpack your own privilege and racism by reading and educating yourself, and many other things. The possibilities are endless and resources are only a Google search away. This episode, we're joined by our special guests to discuss their work and understandings of queer theory, queer music therapy, and gender-affirming voice work, a new and exciting practice they've worked to develop. So grab your sunscreen and pour that tea over some ice because summer is officially here and it's time for another episode with... Maven Gumbel. Maven Gumbel, MMT, MTBC, is a white, queer, non-binary, trans, enabled music therapist who uses they, them pronouns. They currently work full-time with a local nonprofit providing mobile mental health services to older adults in their homes and community settings. Maven also maintains a small private practice, Becoming Through Sound, where they offer a variety of music therapy services, most notably gender-affirming voice work, a method that focuses on accessing and embodying affirming gender expressions. Maven completed their undergraduate and graduate studies at Slippery Rock University in Pennsylvania. They have served as a guest editor on Voices, a world forum for music therapy, for the special issue on queering music therapy, and have published several articles on gender-affirming voice work. I'm so excited to talk to you. It's Pride Month. Happy Pride. (laughs) Yes. Um, So let's just jump right in. So what does queer music therapy mean to you and to your practice? Um, Yeah, well... First off, I think queer can mean a lot of different things. Um, queer itself can be like a derogatory insult, right? Um, it certainly has its history and kind of being used against queer people, against LGBTQ people. Um, alongside that, you know, there's, there's also other folks who've kind of reclaimed that word, um, who, who've found that word to be something that they intentionally use to describe themselves, to describe their gender, their sexuality, uh, their way of existing in the world. Um, and so it's kind of complex because some people have really embraced the term. Um, and for others, you know, they might have grown up with that word being used against them in really harmful, harmful ways. So, um, you know, it, it, it has a unique history. And, and I, I think it's important to kind of acknowledge that and kind of say that, that not everybody loves this word. <laughs> I personally love it, um, especially when we understand it um, as a verb. Um, really connected with queer theory, uh, really connected with a way of thinking about the world, um, about people. Um, queer as a verb to, to me means to, to queer something, to unsettle fixed essentialist understandings that are damaging. Um, 
it's questioning why behavior is pathologized. It's questioning, um, you know, how the idea of populations and fixed groups of people and, and understanding that, you know, that's really redu- a reductionistic way of thinking about stuff. Um, so for me, queer as a verb really means to, to dismantle binary either or structure, structures, to shift to the both and. Um, to shift to a more complex, fluid way of understanding something, um, grounding our experiences and, and contextualizing them. Um, and you know, in queer theory, like it really started focused on gender and sexuality, but it's it's really shifted to other aspects of identity, like race and disability, and 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 so on. Um, uh, so, but your question is, is, what does it mean to me and the way I practice? Um, so for me, it, it's this, about this verb understanding. It's about understanding queer as like an action, as something you do, as something you embody. It's a tool to kind of dismantle structures and helps me to think critically about the way I practice, the way I understand people, um, the way I communicate about people. Um, it's, for me, it's about asking myself, am I understanding this person in a fixed way? Am I understanding this work in a limiting way? Um, am I invoking power structures that are damaging to people? Um, it, it's really, for me, it becomes a framework for challenging moments that, that are limiting or too fixed or too settled. Um, yeah, so that's what it is for me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. okay. That's so interesting. Um, <laughs> so your definition of queer really goes beyond the LGBTQ kind of definition we usually associate it with or at least yeah, I've always yeah. there's often a lot of um misconception because like like I said like queer can mean so many things it has such a history in all these different contexts it can be an adjective it can be a noun it can be a verb um it really depends on how you're using it and 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 kind of um what's the intention of it you know I really like to think of it as, as a verb as an action as something to embody and, and challenge to unsettle things, but yeah. <laughs> unsettle, yeah. Yeah, there's um, a, I don't know if you're familiar, but there's a um, a, a special edition um, of Voices that specifically like dives into queering music therapy using queer theory. It's really, I was a guest co-editor, so I'm kind of like tooting that, but <laughs> it's- it's yeah, I know, where I first came across your name. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you give me like a little example of how you would use queer theory to understand a person or understand how your work was fixed? Do you have like anything off the top of your head? Yeah, um, I mean, with my voice work, uh, this is one of the limitations of, you know, I know that's kind of getting ahead and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but I won't dive in too deep. Um, <laughs> but, but just this idea of, you know, when I started thinking about this voice work, I was really focused on my experiences personally, and I'm a, I'm a white person. I'm a, um, a person with, with lived experience singing. I have trained, um, I have trained with teach voice teachers. Um, I am white, you know, I know I said that before, but like, that's an important aspect of, of the way I vocally embody myself and to just say, oh, I'm doing gender affirming voice work with trans and non-binary folks or people who are interested in exploring their gender. That doesn't, include all the intricacies of our lived experience. And so queering that means 
really unsettling fixed categories of not, I'm not just working with LGBTQ people, but I'm working with people who also have a race, who also have um, experiences or not no experiences with music and, and voice training. I'm also working with people who um, have different kinds of access to, to money based on just their lived experience. And, and um, for me, it's like really unsettling that it's not just one group of people, but it's a group of people who have many wide variety of experiences. Um, I'm not sure if that that's a, an example that fits where, where that kind of answers what your question is, but yeah it reminds me a lot of um like the term intersectional yeah exactly i had um i learned what that like truly meant just the other year which shows you like how much unpacking i have to do around my whiteness but like it was it's not like our layered identities on top of each other but the fact Mm -hmm. that our identities combine to give us a unique point of Mm -hmm. in the original meaning like discrimination Mm -hmm. for being black and being a woman Mm -hmm. uh, and like how we're all I don't know. It's so yeah. complicated, but it's so yeah. much more real, I think, yeah. than absolutely. I know, yeah, yeah. And, and it, I, I, I'm sitting in my own, um, my own privilege in that, like you know, when I first started exploring this voice work, like I was really thinking about my own experiences and my own intersections. Of course, trying to think outside of them, but when you're in that, you, you, you don't always recognize the ways. And, and I'm, I'm starting soon. I'm going to be working with a couple, like a team of researchers specifically exploring black experience and, and voice work. Um, and, and how there's, there's nuances to that, that are, that are important, um, to recognize and that lived experience. So I don't know we're always learning how much we know, that. <laughs> you know, yeah, I hope so. I hope we're always <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So with that definition delineated a little bit, um, what are some ways you think we as music therapists can incorporate queer theory or queerness into our work? And as like a little tag along question, do you think that's something everyone can do? Yeah. So, so first I do think it's something that everyone can do if they're willing. Um, I think embodying a queering kind of space is, is, um, in my mind, a really radical idea. I feel like it, it pushes us in ways that I don't think everyone, including myself at times, is, is comfortable with. Um, uh, that said, I don't think I have a set list of like simple to-do tasks um, that you know we can somehow magically integrate queer theory into our practice. And I think if we did, it wouldn't be complex and like hold the the complexity of that mm-hmm. um, I do yeah right because <laughs> it, it's it's kind of getting at the querying aspect of like you know engaging in a querying practice I I think in in my mind um, means engaging in a querying thought process um, that informs all aspects of our work um, the, the way we assess the way we conceptualize and treat people um, the way we describe our work and the way the work we do alongside other people um, how we describe the people we work with. Um, I, I think it's never ending. I think, it, you know, it really comes down to the idea of querying thought process, I think, and, and thinking about that in terms of all aspects of music therapy. Um, so it's, in my mind, it's not a to-do list of, if I do X, Y, and Z, I'm magically querying music therapy, but, but really thinking critically um, all the time and not settling, not getting stuck in a, in a fixed way. Yeah. yeah. Oh, 
I so I so wish there were to do lists. Like just I know, you know, I, I love to do lists, and you'll be good. You'll never oppress anyone or anything ever again. <laughs> yes, uh, I love to do list because of that, <laughs> and I feel like I get caught, and I think others do too. Get caught in a okay, I did these things, so now I'm done, and yeah, that's also a limiting way of understanding things to get kind of caught in the okay, I've checked off all these boxes, now we're good, right? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you're talking about like a fundamental change in how yeah. we are. That's what queering is. I love it. <laughs> oh, ooh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Can you yeah. say just a little bit more about that? Yeah, it, I, I think if we're querying our practice, I think we are radically shifting things around um, to a point where it, maybe it's not even recognizable to, to what we, the way we practice usually, maybe, um, you know, you know, therapy is so rooted in, in, in capitalistic structures and, in, um, oppressive structures that I think, you know, if we radically shifted therapy, it might look very different from, from what we're used to. I think, um, maybe that's too broad of an idea, but, <laughs> um, think so i think it's in what ways might we shift do you envision us shifting not that you're expected to have all the answers but oh no i don't have all the answers (laughs) um you know i don't i'm not even sure what it would look like because it's so hard to imagine something outside of structures that already exist because they're not even it's not just with music therapy right i mean we're thinking all of healthcare, all of um all, the way we treat people in, in many fields is dependent upon grouping a bunch of people together and saying this is evidence-based treatment for this group of people when that's not looking at the nuances of, of that particular group of people. Um, so I, it's hard for me to imagine what it would look like outside of um, outside of what we already exist. And, you know, this came up in a, in a panel that I was on with a couple of um, other folks who were in the SRU program with me from Slippery Rock University, where we were talking about these ideas like queering practice and what what would that look like? And I, we also got stuck in this, like, well, I don't know, what, what would it look like if it, we didn't have these really oppressive structures that limit us? Um, I think it's a hard question to answer. And I don't think any one person is going to have the answer to it. It reminds me a little bit of, I was reading Teaching to Transgress um, by Bell Hooks. Mm-hmm. she talks about how like the goal of the educator of the professor is to be like um what she called not enlightened but like a like a um oh my god what's the word i'm looking for a like fully actualized person like we should always be striving towards that and that should be like the basis of how we interact with the world rather than I'm the smartest person in the room or I know more than everyone. It's I am moving towards wholeness and that's how I interact with the world and with my students and hopefully with our clients is we're all moving towards wholeness, trying to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. And I, like that kind of hits on the, um, that expert client thing that I, yeah, (laughs) you know, like it gets at the oh I'm the expert here and to unsettle that is like we're both in the midst of learning and growing and figuring life out you know but yeah I remember my other thought 
it was that like evidence-based treatment and like evidence-based practice has become such like a loaded term and such a mm-hmm. a tricky thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if you want to speak to that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I understand it. And I think it hits at the, the checklist thing that we were talking about before of like, we like logic. We like, I mean, we're also driven by a capitalist thing that, you know, money drives most of most things. Um, and if we can prove that something works and we can fund it, um, and it's just it's all part of a bigger system of, you know, that it's, it's part of a bigger system. I'm getting lost in my thought here for a second. It's, it's part of this bigger thing that, you know, we can't easily extric- extricate ourselves from, from that from evidence-based treatment from therapy as it exists now and I'm not saying it can exist but I think it's hard Mm. it is it's very hard Mm -hmm. yeah I just know in my work especially with my kids with autism like there's such a big push for evidence-based treatment which Mm -hmm. means ABA but when we like truly look at the evidence base ABA doesn't hold up in Mm -hmm. yeah and it's also really traumatic oh my god is it traumatic it's so there's so much literature about coming from the autistic community about how that experience has been so traumatic for people um and and i i used to work in a residential placement where um the, the 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 i wasn't a therapist there i was a um kind of like a direct care worker at the time and i was having to follow these treatment plans from the therapist that were ABA and like seeing how much damage it can do to mm-hmm. the kid who, you know, I, I just thought, yeah, it's so traumatic and, and trying to find ways to, I don't know, you know, evidence-based practice drives everything in terms of money and, and all that, but yeah. 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 Hmm. I so hard. Like, a hole over here. Sorry. <laughs> no, fine. It's hard when there are no like clear cut answers, and we just yeah. And I understand the, the purpose of evidence based practice. I'm not knocking all of it, and I think it it can really it can really cause damage um, mm. in the ways that it it kind of forces us into a reductionist way of understanding the world. So shifting gears just a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and I suspect you're going to push back on this question just a little <laughs> bit based on what we've talked about so far. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, what are some things that you think we as a profession should be aware of when working specifically with LGBTQ clients? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, you're right. I am going to push back a little bit. <laughs> yes, I think this question really gets at what we were we were just talking about the idea of grouping a set of people together um, on one facet of their experience or one facet of their identity, um, I don't think that's a kind of um, query. And I think I think it really shifts us into okay, what checklist of items do I need to know to kind of check off to know okay, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Now I can work with queer, trans, and non-binary people. No problem. I'm good. Um, and I would love that because <laughs> like I said, my, I like logic, my like being able to say, okay, I, I've done this. And um, 
I just, I don't think it's a queering practice to me. It's a, it's a practice that um, pathologizes one aspect, pathologizes one aspect of our identity instead of really sitting in a fluid, mm-hmm. unfixed, unknowing, questioning, kind of ever evolving space. Um, and for me, for me in, in, in all of my work, not just with um, working with trans and non-binary folks, but everyone I work with, because um, I also have a, a full-time job working with um, older adults with, with different kinds of mental health needs. Um, I think about, you know, I, I think the one thing that I would come to, if I had to pick one thing, <laughs> um, I would say like a genuine empathetic curiosity, um, which I guess is three things, but <laughs> um, but, but curiosity really being one of the most important things and not like saying, okay, I have the answer to this and I'm going to go do it. But I'm, I'm curious about your experience and does the resources or do the resources that I have, will that help you? Or do we need to go maybe find something different, you know? Mm. Um, no. Yeah. So I, I know I pushed back a little bit, but I guess curiosity would be the one thing. Yeah. So I'm curious then on your thoughts. Um, curious. About the, <laughs> curious <laughs> about the um, best practices article that came out a while ago um, mm-hmm. by Whitehead Plow et al. Yeah, um, I think it was a good start. Um, you, you're talking about the LGBTQ one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good start because I think, I think it, I think it offers important information that people should know. However, I don't, I think checklists get us stuck into a, okay, I'm done. I've done this. Okay, I'm good. When, if we're embodying a set of characteristics or qualities, I feel like those become less checklist and more like, okay, am I, am I living those qualities in relation to this person? Um, I'm not sure if if that, if I'm wording that in a way that makes sense. Um, think so yeah yeah it's a lot more gray it's a lot more like how do I teach that how do I yeah and and that comes back I think to evidence-based practice and into money and capitalism and um how can I get this to people in the most efficient way and so we neatly package things to make them nice and neat and, and organized and I can deliver this to you and it makes sense and while I'm not saying all of that stuff isn't true um or relevant or or a part of the bigger picture I feel like it gets us stuck in in a fixed way of thinking because it's presented as the only reality or there's no nuance to to those things yeah it sounds like they might be a good starting point yeah as long as you don't stop there yeah and I, I wish that we could somehow not have checklists but still offer <laughs> that <laughs> yeah yeah mm-hmm. talking a yeah. lot about how much I don't like checklists <laughs> <laughs> some of my students um because I supervise practicums and they have mm-hmm. to do it and um, one of their assessments was a checklist and mm-hmm. they're like I don't get how to assess for like social skills if my client won't talk to me like how do I check off these things on this checklist and I was like you don't need it you don't need a checklist you need to look at the client in front of you 
Mm-hmm. If they're curious, yeah. Interacting with you if, you, if they're with you in that space. Yeah. Like, I don't know how necessarily to teach that, mm-hmm. but that's where we should be moving towards. Yeah. And that that's, I think that gets back to your question of like, what would it look like to, to engage in like a querying practice, you know, of like, what would that be to, to really teach in a way that's querying to, to think about people in a way that's querying to practice in a way. And there's no mm. answer to that, you know? Yeah. There's so much unknown mm-hmm. and that unknown is so scary. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah, absolutely. That's why we do our self-work. <sighs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about your work with gender-affirming voice work. Sure. Um, so this work really started um, within my own personal experiences as a non-binary trans singer and music therapist. Um, during my graduate work, I ended up kind of realizing my own, or the beginnings, I should say, of, of my own gender. Um, ended up becoming more aware of the ways I, I, my gender doesn't really fit into either man or woman, but rather into this in-between gray, murky, beyond, outside <laughs> of space. <laughs> um, and, and, and out of that really came thinking about my relationship with my voice and wanting to access parts of my voice that were more affirming for me, um, not only in terms of singing, but also speech. Um, and so kind of fast forward a little bit, it eventually led to me kind of thinking about the idea of having this holistic space where, you know, people could not only work on vocal function, um, but also like our emotional experiences of our gender and our bodies. Um, so basically not just not just working on how to access different vocal qualities that are more reflective of a person's gender. So the kind of the work that speech language pathologists do, um, but also supporting the more emotional aspects of that work, um, supporting the fact, and, and I, I really strongly believe this, that, that we all, regardless of whether we're cis, we're trans, non-binary, we all have some experience of gender trauma. Um, mm. Yeah, like when we're socialized creatures, we were trained to inhabit this world in gendered ways, whether we're cis, trans, and non-binary again. Um, and, and those learned things can be so harmful to everyone, um, mm-hmm. which is why, um, although, although I think this work is particularly important for trans and non-binary folks, and that's who I, who I work with. I, I haven't worked with a cis person. I would love to. I think that work would be fascinating to me. Um, I think this re- this work is really relevant to everybody because um, we all have some kind of relationship with the idea of gender. Um, and for me, this work really surrounds this idea of queer listening, um, of listening to our experiences and kind of leaning into areas that are more affirming for us, um, which well, while also trying to, to find ways to appreciate some aspects of our gender and our voices and of, of our bodies that we might pull away from, um, kind of inhabiting this kind of childlike wonder, playful space, curiosity, um, where we can find a way to feel kind of affirmed and at least in that moment, kind of knowing, um, that we, we can, and we will shift and evolve. But I mean, that moment's not forever. It's understanding as, as evolving and growing, but 
kind of this idea of queer voicings or queer um, embodiments or, yeah, but. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And I, I haven't really witnessed that, like, um, I haven't witnessed work that's specifically focused on supporting people with both the vocal function piece and the emotional identity based needs piece. Uh-huh. Yeah. For, for me, I was like, I, I so enjoy being able to do that work. Cause you know, for, for one person, I like, we were working on a specific vocal technique to help them sustain their sound better. Um, and this person ended up having a really strong emotional response to that. We were focused on technique. We weren't focused on emotions. We weren't focused on identity. We were focused on, okay, I'm going to use this technique to try and ground my sound in my body. Um, but it resulted in this, this almost panic attack almost. And so we moved out of the, that technique to focus on grounding themselves um, and, and kind of getting, focusing on that emotional need and then getting back into the technique once we were grounded. But, you know, as a, as a music therapist, like we have this really unique capacity to hold that space in a way that's different from speech language pathologists. And that's not to say that we're better than them or they're better than us or, or anything. It's just that we have a different skill set and it's really unique and can be really helpful, I think, um, for folks in, in, in ways that I, I'm not seeing anywhere else. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I get really excited about that. Yeah, really, it comes down to um, not only accessing affirming gender expressions, like particularly vocal, but but I also do some body work with folks too, um, kind of focused on the way we inhabit our body and our voice. Um, so, so accessing those expressions, but also embodying them on a daily, because we can access them temporarily and then not be able to reaccess them. So, trying to embody those um, when it when we're safely able to do that when we want to. Because um, that's another thing for, for the safety piece is so important for, for mm-hmm. folks I work with. Like I, I, I'm working with a, um, a black woman who, you know, she, you know, she was accessing this really low, rich resonance space that I think a lot of folks would attach with ma- masculinity, you know, um, mm-hmm. and it, for her, it was so affirming. It was, it was, um, she really enjoyed that space. And then after it led to this really, um, kind of sad improvisation um, because she, she's like, if I went out and voiced in that way, it could be so dangerous for me, you know, to, to, to voice in that way and potentially be identified as not cis um, and then become a target. And that's not to say her voice is the only, with any of us, that our voice is the only thing that marks us as one thing or another, but um, but safety is, is such a thing. And that's why a lot of the work I do with folks is about kind of gaining that versatility of your voice so that you can choose in different moments, wherever you are to voice in a way that's safe for you. And that's affirming or as affirming as it can be while still being safe. Mm. Um, yeah, but safety is such an important thing. Uh, yeah. yeah. I know it's murky in that because I, I, I know this is kind of, getting off, getting off topic a little bit, but like, I think a lot about my role and, you know, in some ways I'm helping people to uphold gender, gender norms. Um, 
by like, you know, somebody comes in and they want to present in a more feminine presenting way. And so we work maybe on, on kind of shifting their voice to, to match different patterns of, of speech or, or um, kind of different timbres and resonances of, of the voice that are typically associated with femininity. Um, so in some way we're, we're upholding these gender norms. Um, and then in other ways, I, I want to tell people just voice however you want. But then again, that gets to the safety piece of like, can people actually do that in a safe way that won't put them in a situation for violence to potentially be inflicted on them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think about that a lot, especially mm -hmm. um, because like I dabble and drag and all those things. And so like when I, I don't know, when I think about my gender, when I think about like mm -hmm. my maleness, like mm -hmm. sometimes I feel more feminine, sometimes I feel more mm -hmm. masculine. And like to express that, I do that through clothes and makeup. But then like in order to do that, I have to ascribe to the gender norms of whatever I'm feeling more towards. And it's like, well, how do I break out of those gender norms mm -hmm. while reinforcing those gender norms? And how do you get yeah. lost in the gender soup? <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. I, I don't think there's a, like, like we were saying before, I don't think there's an easy answer. But it's just been, I've had conversations with people about, you know, I want you to be able to voice in whatever way you want. And I also want you to be safe. And, and um, I'm not there to tell a person how they should or shouldn't voice. That's not my how I understand my role. I'm just there to support and also have conversations with people about, about that because I, I think it's com complex. Yeah. yeah, the delicate dance between all this mm -hmm. authenticity and safety. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. <laughs> yeah. So um, I know this is like the worst question ever because the answer is it depends. Um, but what might a gender affirming voice work session look like? Yeah. Um, and actually, I do have a kind of, um, it's not strict because it, it opens up a bit. But um, for me, it's always important to kind of set an intention first. And maybe that intention is... Um, we're going to work on technique today. We're going to work on really grounding our sound and our body. We're, it's going to be more focused on that. Uh, or maybe the intention is we're going to explore resonance today. We're going to kind of play around, see if there's a resonance or a space in your voice that you really connect with. Um, so that'll be our, our intention. Or maybe our focus is we're just going to, we're going to go more the emotional um, route and explore your relationship with your gender and your body, you know? Um, so our intention can be a lot of different things, um, but we, we, we find an intention. And then from there, we start in some kind of grounded um, body mindfulness experience. So usually I have folks kind of lie down and do some kind of um, getting into your body. It might be like a progressive muscle relaxation. It might be um, some kind of imagery thing just to kind of keep get people grounded in themselves because your, your voice is your body. You know, we can't separate ourselves from that. So in order to, to really inhabit our voice, we need to inhabit our body. Um, so we'll start off with that. And then once we do that kind of work, um, that's where it really opens up. We go into that intention and that could be so many different things. Usually I'm sit, sit, um, sitting at the piano and that's really the only consistent of the, <laughs> the end of the, the rest of the session. <laughs> like I'm usually sitting at the piano and we could be working on a lot of different things. We could be doing 
um, different chanting or toning experiences focused on those intentions again. Um, so like vocal function, identity, some, again, sometimes mixing and sometimes shifting between, you know, if somebody's working on technique and it becomes, they have a really emotional reaction, we shift into addressing that because that, that becomes the need. Um, so it could be that it, um, it's also involved what my friend Ray and I have been calling, uh, conversational improvisation. Um, and basically it's, it's using the prosody of our speech. So like right now, as I'm talking, there's rhythm to my speech, there's pitch, there's pitch, pitch, you know, there's, there's timbre, there's resonance, there's all these different qualities that are musical. And I mean, music therapists, we know this, but but to really intentionally use those and have those be um, just conversation. Sometimes I'm using, um, I start off typically using poetry or like song lyrics and having people read those out loud. Um, cause I think it's safer to have, like, it's kind of like that checklist. You have something right in front of you. You can look at it very clearly, you know, um, whereas I prefer, and I think it's more meaningful to really work with conversation. Like you and I were talking right now, um, and using actual conversation as the point to enter in and out of, of the experience. So right now I could, if we, I was doing a session with myself, like I might take the things I'm saying, find some of the mel- melodic, like motifs, that kind of stuff, and have that be the basis of like an improv and exploring those. You can explore the resonance of them. You can maybe play with, hey, what if I move this a little bit lower into my voice? What if I'm like shifting down here into my voice, you know? Or what if I'm shifting higher? Like what would that be to like kind of shift that 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 higher? Um, and, and just kind of using that as the basis as kind of givens for improv, givens for kind of music making spaces. And moving in and out of of that yeah yeah that is so fascinating yeah i love it there's this this uh, method um within speech language pathology that's called oh i'm gonna oh, i always mess it up conversation training therapy i think conversation training therapy um and it's basically talking about this idea about how you know speech language pathologists have found that you know people working on tech, usually speech language pathology, the way that speech therapists work, they will start with, it's a higher hierarchy. They'll start with like vowels, A-E-I-O-U, and then you move up and up into your in conversation. So vowels, nonsense, syllables, la, 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 that kind of stuff. And so you're eventually in sentences and having full conversation. And people have found that it's really hard to move from technique to conversation. Because mm-hmm. when you're in technique, you're not necessarily using your voice how you would in conversation, right? So this this method is really trying to challenge that and say, no, let's start in conversation and move in and out of that, so that you're at a point where you're you're matching you're matching a person where they're at. You're you're using their voice in their natural conversational space, um, and and using that as the as the focus and yeah you might pop out into technique but you're you're doing it with a connection back to to conversation i'm not sure if i'm making sense yeah no at least yeah. me <laughs> no i had an experience when before i even found this 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 um method i was working with my own voice and i was i started off doing like what you might do in a voice lesson where you do little exercises, little like vocal experiences to like warm up your voice, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then trying to transition that back to my speaking voice or to move into the, like to switch between speaking and singing became this really fixed stuck thing. Mm-hmm. 
they mm. weren't connected. <laughs> um, so, so really trying to start with, okay, I'm using poetry and this is how I'm naturally using that. So I'm, then I'm going to take that phrase. I'm going to take that phrase. I'm going to take that phrase. And then like that becomes the given of the music, you know, or the given of whatever yeah. we're working on. Yeah. Oh, I'm really so excited good. about this. So cut me off whenever you want. <laughs> Never. Oh. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. No, I, yeah, that makes perfect sense because I remember in like my own vocal training, I took a couple of years of voice lessons mm-hmm. um, while I was in school because as a percussionist, my voice needed some help. Um, and like having that distinct like cutoff between this is my singing voice, this is yeah. my voice. If I'm going to sing, I have to do all these things to set yeah. my voice up properly and yeah. Yeah. And how beautiful to take that mm-hmm. the therapy and say, why don't, what if we melted them? What if yeah. we're able to go back and forth fluidly? How does that change your identity? How does that change mm-hmm. how you experience yourself? Oh my God. So cool. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I also really love working with imagery um, oh, in yes. different kinds of ways uh, to image imagery to kind of reflect qualities of your voice or, to act kind of vocal technique or to kind of reflect on our experience. Um, like for me, for example, I really connect with ocean imagery uh, for my gender. I mean, it's fluid, it's shifting, it's in this constant state of becoming, it's expansive. Um, I think it's just this perfect representation. Sorry, I have a weird hiccup at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it's, I just feel like this perfect representation of, of, kind of my gender and so I, I sometimes use that to kind of explore within the music therapy space have that be as like a given um well, well for my gender I should say um with other folks I like find their their own imagery you know um, yeah. yeah but it also works for vocal technique like for me I, I really it's less um something you see and more like a sensation um like this sense of raw cathartic uncontained energy like that that feeling that comes up when I think about that mm-hmm. um, that really helps me to, to connect with my whole body, um, to really get into my voice and, and kind of ground, ground myself in that way. Um, so, but I, like I said, I work with folks on finding their own imagery that works, whether it's for a vocal technique, whether it's for um, representing their gender. Um, but I think imagery provides like a really unique thing because you can think about that outside of a session, right? Like you can think, okay, we were talking about using that raw energy to inhabit this sound. Okay, if I think about that outside of session, I can take that and apply it um, and, and think about that to help me embody my voice in X, Y, or Z space, you know? Yeah, yeah. that's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. I was I just reading it. the other day that like our minds mm-hmm. like understand mm-hmm. things imagery, which we then have to translate to thoughts and then to words. Mm-hmm. Imagery is like the core language mm. of our selfhood, which I don't know if that's true or not, but that really resonates with me. Yeah, I I like that. Yeah, because I think words are also another limiting thing. Like sometimes we don't have words for experiences. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and to be able to attach a sound or an idea or something to a specific image or whether that's like you see it or you feel it or it's, it's something you sense. Um, imagery can be a lot of different things, but um connecting it with some something that represents like a symbol really mm. yeah so beautiful yes oh, 
I love this work so much. <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> I, really, okay. I don't have enough time in the day to really dive into this work as much as I'd like to. <sighs> yeah. What do you think that we as music therapists, we as a profession can and or need to do better in regards to the queer community within our profession as our clients outside of our profession? Yeah, I wrote down just be more curious. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's, um, I, I think that gets at the the unfixedness of things and to not just go by checklists, but to, to try and in, inhabit that curiosity. What's your favorite part of being a music therapist? What's your favorite part of your job? Yeah. Um, so I think I mentioned before, I work in a couple different spaces. Um, my full-time gig is uh, I work as a mobile mental health therapist with older adults. Um, and so uh, I love that work. And um, my, my favorite part of the, my gender for me, voice, voice work, like that's, that's where I, my, my heart is really at. And I, and I, again, I love the work that I do with my older folks, but um, I just wish I could do my voice work all the time. <laughs> Um, because I feel like in that space, I really am able to witness people access this part of themselves or these parts of themselves that, um, allow them to feel more grounded. Um, and and that's, I think that's such an honor because I think it, it doesn't, we aren't always in safe spaces to do that. So when I am able to witness that or like to help somebody access that, I think it's just this really powerful moment of like, oh, you trust me for that to be a, a, a thing that you feel safe enough to express and, and, and to, to sit with. Like I had a person who, um, you know, when we first started working together, um, she really sat in this, this hyper feminine part of her voice. Um, and again, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't, I don't want to convey, you know, it, it's bad to, to do that. Um, but we eventually got to this point where she accessed this really low, rich, resonant part of her voice. Um, and I, I commented on it afterward and was just like, hey, like, that was very different. And she was like, yeah, I didn't really trust you at the beginning. And, and now, like, I feel able to use this voice. So when people access something that they don't always share with other people, it feels, um, I feel honored to have that. Um, yeah. yeah, that's a very, I love that way that you put it, that it's an honor. Yeah. And again, that's not to say that like people should or shouldn't voice in a certain way. I just think sometimes we, we get these prescriptions of how you should voice, uh, particularly as a trans and non-binary person, that to, 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 to meet that standard of, oh, yeah, I'm a trans woman or I'm a trans man, you know. I have to voice in this way. I think while that, that is important because it helps us pass in some ways, um, I think that can be just as harmful. Um, anyway, that's not my favorite part is just being <laughs> <with> people. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds like that gets back to that idea of yeah. like fixed and rigidity and how that's the yeah. opposite. Like yeah. yeah, being able to sit in that queer space with queer folks, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> It's yeah. a beautiful thing. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Okay. Um, least favorite or hardest part of your job? Yeah. Um, 
I would say that it's trying to find the time to do this work. <laughs> there are not enough hours in the day to do all the things I want to do. And so trying to carve out time to do that. I'm, I'm trying to get my LPC at the moment. Um, so I'm working on all my supervised hours for that. And uh, yeah, it's it's just hard to find time to do all the things I want to do. Yeah. Oh. Mm, good for you, though. <laughs> It sure is hard to find time for all the things we love. So I hope you're able to find some time today, this week, or even this month to do what you love and to find some time to do what you need to do too. Our time together has come to an end, unfortunately. But as a reminder, you can always find us on Instagram at mtpodcast and can send us emails about anything you'd like at mtpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends all about us. We also have links to Maven's website and Facebook page, as well as a link to that issue of voices we talked about in the description. Be sure to check them out. As always, we'll end with some final words from Maven about what music means to them. How has music impacted your life? Yeah, um, so it's been a huge part of my life. Um, I it, Honestly, I think it was the only thing that really got me through high school. Like I was, I was definitely the kid who was always in the choir room or the band room, like any period that I could potentially be there. Um, so, so for me to find myself in a position as a, as a music therapist, like it's just kind of living that out. Um, music has always been a place where I'm, uh, I shouldn't say always, it's often a place where I'm able to find solace um, and, and a place to feel comforted and grounded, even when others haven't always been there for me. Um, yeah, I, I think music is, is just a lovely thing. A big part of my life. This episode was hosted by Tony Boykel. Produced by Nathan Sheets. Original music composed and performed by Nathan Sheets and Tony Boykel.